Welcome to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw. We are sponsored by Pilsen and Foraged Market and eFish. I am very, very, very excited to tell you today's guest. Today's guest is none other than Sandor Katz. And Sandor Katz, if you have any interest in serious fermentation, you know his name already because he is something of a of the rock star, the the you you name your famous celebrity, he is that in the world of fermenting foods. He is a a, a font of knowledge. Uh, he has probably forgotten more about fermentation than I will ever know, and I am very very honored to have him on the podcast. And we are going to talk all about lacto lactobacillus and weird kinds of funky ferments and and fermentation all over the world because Sandor has. Study this for decades and decades and decades, and he really knows his stuff. And this is going to be a phenomenal opportunity for everyone to gain a little bit of knowledge about our little microbial friends. So without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. Sandor Katz, I am more than a little bit honored to have you on the podcast because in the world of fermenting things, you're, I mean, kind of a rock star. Well, it's a pleasure to uh, uh, be uh, talking with you today. And, um, you know, in the world of, you know, catching and hunting and cooking things, you're a rock star. I think it's funny. I, when I told people, I told a lot of my friends who are into this kind of stuff as well, that, hey, I'm going to talk to Sandra Katz. And uh, do you have any questions for me? Everyone was like, oh, yeah, I want to know this. I want to know that. Uh, your books, you know, Wild Fermentation and then The Art of Fermentation, which is, that's kind of like the masterwork, at least in my mind. Um, that has been a guide for so many people. It's been so helpful to, to so many that I, I, uh, I'm really just glad you did it. Well, me too. And, um, you know, certainly it's, it's very gratifying to, you know, hear that it's been a useful, uh, resource for so many people. So you, I think we're both from the same part of the world, aren't we? Uh, I'm from New Jersey originally, and I uh, used to live on the Upper East Side for a little while. And I think I think I read that you're from Manhattan. Right? Yeah, yeah. No, I grew up on the Upper West Side. Uh, so you're a Zabar's person. Uh, I I grew up about a, a block and a half from Zabar's. Absolutely. <laughs> when whenever I go back to New York, Zabar's is uh, a pilgrimage that I make. You've lost the accent. Well, I you know I never had that strong of an accent. Um, you know, honestly, like my mother's sisters uh, have very strong Brooklyn accents, but my mother, um, you know, made a conscious effort to lose it. And um, I mean, I've been living in Tennessee for 30 years now. And sometimes when I'm back in New York, my old friends tell me I talk like I'm from the South. But of course, here in Tennessee, nobody would ever for a minute believe that I was from here. No, it's funny. I have done the same thing. I, I lived in Virginia for quite a while and I picked up a twang, just a, just the edge of it. I think a piece of what we do when we move around the country or the world is we, we just want to fit in. We don't want to sound like outsiders. So you get it kind of knocks off the rough edges. Yeah. Yeah. No, that sounds, sounds, sounds like a, sounds like a good theory to me. Tennessee, where in Tennessee are you? Um, almost in the geographic center of the state, about 65 miles southeast of Nashville. Oh, okay. Uh, Cannon County. <laughs> and you've been, you said 30 years. Wow. That's a long yeah. Time. Yeah. What brought you from Manhattan to, to Tennessee? 
Well, um, you know, it was just a moment in my life when I was ready for uh, a big change. And I met some people who were part of uh, an intentional community in rural Tennessee. And I, I visited and I was enchanted. And, um, you know, it hadn't occurred to me to move to a, a remote rural place. And, um, you know, as I said, I was looking to make a big change and I moved down here and, uh, you know, I've really never looked back. I mean, I love to visit New York, but, um, you know, I'm so, I'm so happy, uh, living here. Um, you know, that's when I started gardening and gardening is really what led me into fermentation. Um, so, you know, I would say that, that, that big move, you know, really, uh, uh, you know, sort of set me on the path that, that I've been on. That's the Sandor Kraut. Uh, exactly. sauerkraut kind of is, you know, the gateway drug for so many people. Um, I think mine was dill pickles, but, but sauerkraut is even easier because, uh, you tend to not have to care about, you know, making sure your crowd is super crunchy, even though if you do it right, it is, um, I think a, we, a good place to start is where you started with fermentation and, and how you can use your own years of starting uh, as a way to help others who want to start fermenting as well. Because, you know, one thing I like to say when I deal with wild game and fish is that I make the mistakes so that you don't have to. And I am certain that you've had a very similar experience with fermentation. Well, sure. And, uh, you know, I mean, any, anybody who's going to, um, you know, want to, um, um, you know, experiment widely in the realm of fermentation, you know, should expect uh, uh, to make some mistakes along the way. Um, but, um, um, you know, I started with sauerkraut. I recommend that as a way for other people to start. And, um, um you know, it, it, it is entirely possible to make wonderful sauerkraut without having any failures. Um, um, it's a really straightforward process. Um, uh, so it's, you know, it's typically where I recommend that people start. And, you know, like you, my, my um, you know, earliest, um, you know, memories of the flavor of fermentation uh, um, are from pickles. Um, you know, growing up in New York City as the, you know, grandson of immigrants from Eastern Europe, um, you know, the pickles that we were eating were what in New York we call sour pickles. And outside of New York, people generally call them kosher dill pickles. Um, and as a kid, I, I didn't know anything about how they were made, but I like I loved the flavor of those pickles. And I had a little reputation within within our family uh, for like being the one who'd always finish the pickles in the jar. Um, and so, you know, that that flavor uh, uh, that, you know, I could now re recognize as the flavor of lactic acid, you know, really imprinted on me very, very um, uh, young. Um, but it was really only when I started gardening that I had a practical reason to learn about fermentation. And so that was the point at which I moved from New York to rural Tennessee. And, you know, I like to tell people that I, I was such a naive city kid that it had never even occurred to me that in a garden, all of the cabbage would be ready at about the same time and all of the radishes would be ready at about the same time. But, you know, that, um, you know, rather obvious uh, reality of agricultural production, you know, really gave me uh, like a practical reason to learn about fermentation. And I started with sauerkraut. We had a that, that first year, we had a really nice row of cabbage. Um, but I learned how to make sauerkraut from the joy of cooking. 
Um, and then only because it was so straightforward and so delicious, you know, that's what made me decide to start experimenting. Like, what happens if I put turnips in this? What happens if I put carrots in this? What happens if I put different kinds of seasonings? What happens if I leave it longer? What happens if I ferment it for a shorter time? And, um, you know, I started playing around with the process and, um, and experimenting and then branching out from there into, uh, you know, all kinds of other uh, fermentation processes. So I typically will ferment things like cabbage. I've got, I've got, I grew some daikon radishes like this. I don't know if you've ever grown daikon, but it's basically. Yeah, yeah, sure. Plant and run. I love love daikons. Yeah. I mean, I ended up Actually, growing- right now, I mean, here we are at the, you know, near the end of January and I have the, these purple, di- we've, we've been down to zero degrees here uh-huh. and I have these purple daikons that have no more than like a, some mulch around them that are still, you know, firm and we're still picking them and eating them. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I, I pulled out all my, the rest of mine because I don't know if you heard, but um, basically California ba- more or less floated away the last uh, couple of weeks. So everything is just getting so wet and rotting. Yeah, sure. But daikons grow really super big, and uh, they make a fantastic kind of sauerkraut-ish thing. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, actually, you know, every year I, I, you know, make about 25 gallons of radish kraut out of uh, primarily daikons. Um, um, you know, this is a reality of how people use fermentation is you don't ferment, ferment things that are, you know, precious and rare. You ferment the things that you have in great abundance in overabundance. Um, and, um, you you know, you, you can see in fermentation traditions, especially across Asia, daikons are featured very, very prominently. Hmm. I hadn't really thought of that. That's a very good point that, because I'm trying, I, when you said that, I'm, I'm running through my head of the things that I ferment. And I was like, yeah, my first thought was porcini mushrooms uh, or, or uh, saffron milk caps and those kinds of things. And like, well, yeah, the only time I really do ever ferment them is when I've got just an ass load of them. <laughs> and I can't, and, it, and there's too many to eat fresh and I don't want to dry like six gallons of them. So I'll, uh, I'll boil them for a minute or two to set the color and then, and then pack them with salt. And that works really well. Well, that, that, that sounds, that sounds delicious. And then, you know, in terms of, uh, um, um, you know, preservation using fermentation of, of meat, you know, there's a lot more fermentation of pork than there is fermentation of chicken. And, um, you know, I think that there's a very, um, you know, practical reason for this. It's not that you couldn't ferment chicken in some of the same ways that you can ferment pork. It's that, you know, when you slaughter a pig, you have hundreds of pounds of meat. And when you slaughter a chicken, you have a meal. Um, so, you know, there's just more of a practical imperative to develop techniques to preserve the pork than to preserve the chicken. Also a good point. Do you see the same thing with beef? With, with, with beef? Sure, sure. I mean, there's lots of fermentation of, well, you know, I mean, getting into the, 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 the fermentation of meat, um, you know, I think it's important to recognize that, that most preservation techniques of meat as well as fish 
you know, utilize multiple techniques in order to preserve them. So, you know, it's, I mean, it can be just fermentation, but usually it's a combination of fermentation, salting, drying, uh, in certain cases, smoking. Um, um, and it's sort of, you know, the, 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 the accumulation of, of the different techniques uh, used in moderation that ends up preserving things with, you know, uh, 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 the, the best flavor. I actually have in front of me, um, and, and um, you know, because we are um, uh, only connected through audio rather than video, um, I have a, a bag with some um, pork ribs that I'm fermenting in a Thai style called nem. Um, and, and basically I've created a paste of rice and uh, uh, fresh raw garlic and salt. And then I coat the ribs with that paste. And, you know, it's a short-term ferment. Usually I do about five days at, at uh, room temperatures and then cook the, the, the ribs. But, you know, I've, I've played around with it and it works just as well with beef ribs as with pork ribs. It's just that, you know, the, the tradition for this in Thailand is, is applying it to, to pork. Hmm. So what's going on, I suspect, is the rice is providing some sugar for lactic acid bacteria. You've got salt in there to, you know, keep away the bad bugs. And then garlic is, you know, garlic has got all kinds of properties as well. I mean, it's it's scary if you think about it that you've set pork ribs out on the kitchen counter, you know, in this for five days. Well, I mean, it's scary if you think about it in our contemporary perspective that, you know, any meat that's out of the refrigerator for more than four hours becomes deadly. But of course, until the 20th century, nobody ever had a refrigerator to store the meat in. So, you know, in every part of the world, people developed effective techniques for keeping meat safe. And this is one of them. Um, and, you know, I think your analysis is spot on. The one thing that I would add is that, you know, the, the garlic is the source of the lactic bacteria that are ah, going okay. to break down the, the um, carbohydrates in the rice and produce acidity that, that flavors and protects the meat. Um, and, um, you know, uh, I mean, across Asia, you find techniques like this where, where rice is used as a medium for fermenting uh, uh, meat or fish, um, you know, because one of the limitations in preserving meat or fish through fermentation is the, you know, relative lack of carbohydrates uh, in animal flesh. Um, and, and, you know, uh, uh, you know, fermentation creates these, uh, you know, biopreservative compounds like lactic acid, acetic acid, and alcohol out of carbohydrates. And so, um, um, you, you know, when you, when you add a rich source of carbohydrates like rice into the mix, you know, then suddenly you have something that can turn into lactic acid and, and, and preserve the meat. There's a great example of a sausage I just made, I don't know, a couple months ago. It's a Swedish uh, breakfast sausage called Stankorf, and it is, it's a little like boudin, where it's meat, fat, spices, and cooked barley. And you make them into links, and then you hang the links in the, I mean, I hang in the links in the, in the oven, when you get in an unturned on oven, so it just sits there uh, for two, three, four, five days, similar to your pork ribs. And they get super tangy, like super mega tangy. And then you cook them and eat them. And it's, it's the same kind of, I, I wonder if anybody in Louisiana leaves boudin out for the same reason, because it, it seems like it would work. 
Yeah, 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 sure. And I mean, you know, in Thailand and many places across Asia, people are making sausages like that, but with rice instead of barley. Yeah, cooked rice. Um, you know, and 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 with these ribs, the 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 rice is cooked as well. And um, um, you know, I I, I should just um, plug my book. My 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 latest book is called Fermentation Journeys, and the recipe for for Nam is uh, is in Fermentation Journeys. Hey everybody! If you are interested in buying my cookbooks, I have three of them on my website, Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. That is at huntgathercook.com you will get a 15% discount off the purchase of not only those cookbooks, but also any kind of other gear, swag, or apparel that we sell on the Hunter Angler Gardener Cook shop. You use the code HUNTGATHERTALK. That's HUNTGATHERTALK in all one word, and you will get 15% off your order of any of my cookbooks or of hoodies or shirts or stickers and that sort of thing. On the huntgathercook.com shop, you will see my cookbooks and you will see apparel and stickers and all that sort of thing. Use the code huntgathertalk and you will get 15% off. Thanks in advance for your support. Let's talk about, because I, I, on my list of things I really wanted to ask you is like, what is really blowing your skirt up these days? Like, and it sounds like you are kind of venturing into other cultures in Asia and such to find this you know, things that are not, you won't find it at a Jewish deli. Well, I, I mean, I think one of the, you know, one of the realities of fermentation, one of the things that makes fermentation so interesting is that it is practiced everywhere. I mean, you know, I don't possess um, uh, um, um, encyclopedic knowledge, um, but, but I, I have yet to, you know, people over the years have proposed various counterexamples of uh, uh, culinary traditions or parts of the world where they imagine there is no fermentation. And I've always been able to come up with examples of fermentation in these places. And, you know, the conclusion that I have come to is that, you know, because of the reality that microbiology has illuminated for us that all of the plants and all of the animals and all of the animal products that make up our food are populated by these elaborate communities of microorganisms, you know, there's a certain inevitability to microbial transformation of our food. And, you know, obviously not every microbial transformation of food results in something delicious that we're ready to put into our mouths. But, you know, just as a practical matter in every part of the world over the course of time, you know, people have observed under what conditions does the inevitable microbial transformation of the food result in something that is um, improved in some way, uh, um, you know, more delicious, more digestible, um, um, uh, 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 you know, more nutritious, um, uh, 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 able to be preserved for periods of time versus under what conditions does the food decompose into something disgusting that nobody would ever put into their mouths. And so, you know, without specifically knowing of the existence of microorganisms, you know, people everywhere like developed techniques to work with them. I really want to talk about the more digestible and more delicious and more nutritious piece of this because I think that is a an aspect of fermentation that is a fascinating to me because b I as a chef and a cook I'm mostly interested in the delicious part and the the di the more digestive and the more nutritious part is is sort of magic to me 
And I would love it if you could kind of go into what's going on there. Okay, sure. So, um, well, I mean, you know, more, more, more delicious. I mean, they're, they're not unrelated because, you know, food becomes more delicious because macro compounds are being broken down into simpler, more elemental forms. So, um, you know, when the proteins in, um, you know, meat or fish or for that matter, beans or um, milk gets broken down, it's broken down into amino acids and, and, you know, certain amino acids have, you know, extraordinary flavors. So, you know, the flavor of soybeans, if you just soak them and cook them is really, really mild. And, you know, some might say insipid. Um, whereas if you ferment them, you get these like strong assertive flavors, you know, a glass of milk is, is, is sweet and delicious enough, but you know, it's a fairly plain, mild flavor. You ferment that milk and you can make this extraordinary range of, of, of flavors that all begin from the same starting point um, um, of, of the milk. And it has to do with the, 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 it has to do primarily with the proteins breaking down into amino acids. Um, uh, um, but that th this idea of pre-digestion, I mean, it doesn't only transform the flavor of foods. It, it can change the nutritional profile of foods. So, you know, if we go back to the example of soybeans, um, you know, soybeans are pretty indigestible. You really never hear about people sitting down and eating a big bowl of soybeans for dinner the way you might with chickpeas or lentils or certain other kinds of um um, um, beans, um, uh, 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 you know, because our human digestive systems, you know, can't really fully digest the soybeans and certainly can't extract all that protein out of the soybeans. And so, you know, literally thousands of years ago, the, the Asian cultures that developed soybean agriculture recognized the indigestibility of the soybeans. I mean, you know, if you even when just soybean, regularly cooked. Oh yeah, I mean, if you eat a bowl of of, of just cooked soybeans, like I mean, it, you'll well, that's different. That's an immature bean. Oh, okay. So an immature that's like a green bean compared to a dried bean. Okay. Um, so you know, in one case, it's a vegetable. I mean, at edamame, the soybeans are soft. When a soybean is mature, like any kind of bean, the bean is hard and dry, and so. Um, you know, different cultures across Asia develop different techniques for fermenting the soybeans. And there's an incredible range of soybean ferments. There's uh, soy sauce is probably the most widely known example. Uh, and there's variations of that everywhere across Asia. Um, uh, miso, um, tempeh, natto. Um, there's many other variations on, on fermented soybeans. Uh, of course, there's, you know, a whole world of fermented tofu as well. But what all of these, and, and they, they involve different kinds of organisms, different languages, of time. I mean, you know, tempeh you can make in 24 hours, uh, uh, soy sauce is going to take you a minimum of a year. Um, so, you know, different lengths of time, different organisms, different processes, but what they all have in common is that the protein gets broken down into amino acids, you know, making it, you know, more easily accessible, uh, um, you know, to, to our bodies. Um, you know, the lactose in milk gets broken down under fermentation. The gluten in wheat gets broken down, not by yeast, but by lactic bacteria. Um, and so pre-digestion is just 
really, really important in terms of, you know, making certain kinds of foods that can be difficult for people to digest, you know, more digestible. And part of that is making their nutrients more easily bioavailable. So, you know, that's just a, a, a huge nutritional benefit of, of, uh, of, of fermenting food. That's fascinating. I did. I knew a little bit of that. I did not know that soybeans were special in that respect. Because you're right. I've never actually. I've eaten bajillions of dried beans of all different varieties, but I've never tried to cook a bunch of you know dried soybeans as like like you would you know pinto beans or peppery beans. Right. Well, I mean, the other issue is that it'll take you five or six hours to cook them till they're soft enough to eat. Um, um, but 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 even then, they'll make you just incredibly gassy, and <laughs> you won't get much of the protein out of them. Ah, uh, inulin. <laughs> <laughs> that's the uh, that's the the, the devil in uh, Jerusalem artichokes. Uh, well, I mean, it's the I mean, it's the devil, and yet you know, if you if you get into the world of probiotics and prebiotics, uh-huh. inulin is always cited as the as 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 the prime example of a prebiotic compound, a compound that is not easily digested by our bodies. So it feeds the bacteria along the entire length of our digestive systems. And so, yes, they make us gassy, but there's a benefit to them making us gassy. Fascinating. Which is is that they, they feed the bacteria along the entire length of our digestive systems. And most of the, you know, sort of high end probiotics at this point have prebiotics uh, uh, mixed in with them which is generally inulin. I had no idea. I mean, my advice to everyone who loves Jerusalem artichokes, which most people do like them, except for they make you farty as hell, is that to buy them, either buy them now, because we're, we're recording in January, uh, late January as a matter of fact, or buy them when they're harvested in November and December and keep them in your, in your uh, drawer in the refrigerator until January. Because over time, in, either in the ground or in your refrigerator, that inulin breaks down into fructose in a, in a Jerusalem artichoke and it becomes A, sweeter, and B, a million times less farty than if you eat them in Thanksgiving. Okay, well, good, good to know. I'm just immediately drawn to the, uh, the, the old pamphlet that Ben Franklin wrote called Fart Proudly, uh, which I don't know if you're familiar with it. But it's okay, I'm, I'm not familiar with that, but uh, I, have, I have echoed that theme. I mean, I think that, um, uh, you know, I think that that's, that's part of our sort of normal, healthy digestive processes. And I think, um, uh, you, you know, we, I mean, I, I have definitely talked to people who, you know, feel like they, they're, you know, they're farting, you know, uh, amounts that are uncomfortable for them. But I think that a certain amount of farting is just a sign of healthy digestion, personally. It's kind of the price of being an omnivore, really. <laughs> Quick shout out to one of our sponsors, and that is Filson. Anybody who knows me knows that I wear Filson because Filson doesn't break. It isn't cheap, but neither should it be because it lasts forever. And one of the greatest things that I have of theirs is their Mackinac jacket. If you're not familiar with this jacket, it is a kind of like a a heavy boiled wool overcoat that you can wear anywhere from kind of cold to really cold. And for over 120 years, Filson has been the most trusted outfitter for this kind of outdoor sport, trade and adventure wear. And for almost as long, they've been making that Mackinac cruiser jacket. Originally patented way back in 1914, this jacket has become a legend in its own right, spanning generations as the hallmark of an outdoor coat. Made in the United States, it's heavyweight, all-wool body. 
has classic snap flat pockets and a full width rear pocket that I use as a game vest when I go grouse hunting. This jacket has often been imitated and never been matched. They last forever. I've had mine for at least a decade, and I know some that have lasted for many decades. Shop at Filson.com for the new limited edition green and black plaid Mackinac jacket. I have the forest green, but the green and black plaid sounds every bit as cool. Thanks to Filson for helping to sponsor this show. Back to it. Oh, well, let, 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 let me just let me just finish the thought about about, um, um, you know, how fermentation transforms foods nutritionally. Sure. So, I mean, pre-digestion, pre-digestion is 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 huge, huge, huge. Um, but of course, there's also the the whole aspect of the live bacterial cultures and the, the, the probiotic nature of fermented foods that are not cooked or heat processed after uh, uh, fermentation. And, you know, that, that is certainly not the only benefit of, of eating fermented foods, but I think that it's a really uh, um, potentially profound benefit, you know, mostly in that, you know, these traditional fermented foods uh, embody great microbial biodiversity and, and, um, you know, eating a variety of live fermented foods can be a really great strategy for, um, um, you know, uh, 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 restoring biodiversity in the gut, building biodiversity in the gut. And, you know, of course, we're learning more and more that the bacteria in our intestines, you know, perform all kinds of essential services for us, um, you know, from effective digestion of food and assimilation of nutrients in food to our immune function. And, you know, we're learning more every year about, you know, ways in which the biochemistry of different systems of the body uh, is regulated by bacteria in the gut. So, you know, building biodiversity can, can, you know, really, really um, um, improve people's health, um, improve immune function. Um, you know, uh, we're learning that some of our brain chemistry is related to bacteria in, in the gut. So, you know, almost every aspect of our existence can potentially, uh, um, you know, be improved by, um, you know, increasing gut biodiversity something that goes along with that that i have always sort of preached over the years and i bet you they're connected and although i'm just i'm spitballing here because i'm just thinking it was just thinking of this right this moment is that human beings are meant we're designed to eat a little of a lot not a lot of a little and if you look at traditional cultures hunter-gatherers and and you look at the diets of, of pre-agriculture societies they're incredibly diverse. There's a uh, there's a, a native tribe around here where I live called the Maidu, and the Maidu uh, routinely would eat 142 different plants over the course of the year. And I defy almost everybody listening to this podcast to count to 142 numbers of vegetables that you eat every year. Now I do because I'm a forager, and and you might say, or because you know you <laughs> you're, you're you're into this sort of thing, but that's a lot of different kinds of just plants, not to mention all the different game animals and all the different fish and all the different sea creatures and all the different mushrooms. I suspect, and it's just me talking and guessing, I suspect that a diet like that creates a much more diverse kind of inner, inner ecosystem than if you're just eating shitloads of things that are based on corn. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, ab- absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I mean, it's not just about microbial diversity. I mean, you know, we need diversity, you know, in, in every aspect of our, of, of, of our diets, um, um, you know, diverse plants, uh, diverse colors. Um, uh, um, I, 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 I could not agree with you more. And I tell, think Tell that, someone um, why colors are important. Well, I mean, you know, colors, colors reflect biochemistry. And, um, um, you know, there, there are all of these, uh, you know, phyto compounds that are associated with, with different colors. Um, and so, you know, bright orange vegetables will have, you know, some different nutrients than purple vegetables. And, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, making, making your plate colorful is not just aesthetically pleasing, you know, it, it also makes your, your, your food more, um, you know, nutritionally varied. I, I love that. Uh, I knew it. I just wanted you to say it <laughs> uh. <laughs> uh, because it's just, it's very cool when you think it through and if you read enough of food science, you know, the, the reds and red wine are a certain thing and the, the, the carotene and carrots and other orange things and salmon for that matter. Um, I actually, this is a thing that I tell people quite often because I deal a lot with duck hunters and ducks are omnivores just like we are and ducks, depending on the species and depending on the region and, and sometimes depending on the individual duck, will have wildly diverse diets. And so ducks have a bad habit, at least in our opinion, of eating invertebrates. And when they eat invertebrates, like little shrimpy things or, or you know, animal plankton or, or shrimp or, or whatever, it turns their fat bright orange, just like a salmon. Unfortunately- mm, Interesting. Interesting, yes, but disgusting. <laughs> <because> <laughs> When you wrote, like a spoonie is a great example. A northern shoveler is where you pick the name of that duck that everyone calls them spoonies because they've got a big giant spoon there. Um, when you roast that kind of, of duck, it stinks like low tide in a hot day. So that orange color in a duck's fat is, you know, danger, Will Robinson. Whereas that orange color in, in, a, in a salmonid, like a salmon or trout, is a sign of quality. Okay, well, that 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 that's very interesting. But you know, I mean, I think that um, you know, it's just a, 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 a part of good nutrition, part of eating for health to you know eat a lot of varied plants. And you know, one of the ways to make sure that you're eating varied plants is to eat varied color plants. Does fermentation usually mostly often or always uh, involve lactic acid bacteria and the increase in acidity. I, I suspect that the answer is yes on acidity, but lactic is- I mean, not, no, no, way. not just certainly not always. Okay. Um, um, you know, I, I mean, uh, generally, I mean, you know, any, any kind of, um, so, okay. I, the, the, the title of my first book is wild fermentation. And I did not invent this phrase. This phrase is found throughout the literature and what wild fermentation specifically describes is fermentation based on the organisms that are on the food that you are fermenting. And in that context, you know, in the mix of microorganisms, you know, on any kind of food are going to be lactic acid bacteria. They will, they, they, they are, you know, they're present on all plants. 
Um, I, I mean, I couldn't say that every single kind of animal has lactic acid bacteria, but certainly all mammals uh, uh, have lactic acid bacteria. Um, but I mean, you know, obviously not well in, mu in much of contemporary fermentation uses pure culture starters. So, um, you know, if you are um, buying a bottle of um, wine, you know, if it was made with pure culture starters and there and, and they used, you know, chemical means like potassium metabisulfate or something to, you know, sort of kill off whatever, you know, indigenous organisms were present on the plant that would kill off the lactic acid bacteria. And the sort of the desire from using that pure culture yeast is to, you know, get alcohol without any added acidity beyond the acidity of the grapes. Um, so, so, you know, the whole, um, you know, modern technique is all about attempting to exclude lactic as well as acetic uh, uh, bacteria. Um, but, but I mean, there, there, there are certain ferments that, that actually produce alkaline byproducts. Interesting. So, like so I mean, you know, I, I'm going to, the first one I'm going to cite is one that, you know, certainly is going to be familiar to you. And that would be your soft ripened cheeses, brie or camembert cheese. Do you ever smell like a, a really ripe, runny brie or camembert cheese? And it smells like ammonia. Hmm. So ammonia is an extremely alkaline byproduct. And, um, uh, uh, you know, there, there, there are lots of cheeses that, that are primarily driven by these sort of alkaline uh, uh, ferments. Um, and then there's a, there's, there's a, a famous Japanese ferment. Um, I actually think I cited it earlier when we were talking about soybeans. Oh, natto? But it's called natto. Oh and, God, it's revolting. <laughs> bacillus. Well, I, I mean, I, I mean, I actually have come to love natto. Um, but Bacillus subtilis, uh, which is the bacteria that drives that fermentation, is an extremely, extremely widespread soil bacteria. Um, it happens that it can survive boiling temperatures. So you can cook your beans and the Bacillus subtilis is still um, um, intact and, and present on the beans. Um, and um, so, you, you know, what, 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 what you're reacting to about the natto is that ammonia smell, but it's an alkaline ferment. It's, it's the opposite of acidic. Um, so sure, I mean, the vast majority of fermentation processes involve lactic acid bacteria but definitely not all of them. Okay, that's good to know. I mean, I, I, as soon as I said it, I'm thinking, well, what about acetic acid? Like burp. You know, that's yeah, and then also vinegar. like, you know, like I'm... I'm you know, pure culture starters didn't really exist until the very end of the 19th century, you know, effectively commercially. They weren't available to the 20th century. Um, but... Um, you know, like right now, if, if you're a beer drinker, you, you've noticed that there's this sort of like, um, you know, renaissance of sour beers and, yes. and you know, and I, I love them and some people really hate them. But, you know, the, the, the more I've thought about it, the more I realize like until the 20th century, probably all beer was a little bit sour. Um, because there was there was no practical way of isolating yeast and and you know yeast in the natural world is always going to be in the presence of, of lactic acid bacteria. So uh, so I would I would imagine that until you know at some point in the 20th in the early 20th century, you know, most beer in the world had a little bit of a sour edge to it. 
Well, one of the reasons why the German lagering process is so strict and difficult is to prevent that. It's kept at such low temperatures that everything was kind of calm uh, versus like an English ale. I guarantee you're correct. Because yeah, yeah, but but lactic acid bacteria grow perfectly well in the refrigerator, and that's colder than lagering temperatures. Um, um, you know, it might slow down the souring, but you know, it's still going to be present <laughs> at true. some at some at some level. I have a question for you that because I do a lot of salami, a lot of dry cured meats, and as a, as an author in the public eye, I always tell people buy the starter kit, go to butcher and packer or wherever. Get the starter culture that you know that you that is appropriate for that style of salami, and use it, and and actually use it in amounts that are more than the package. Because when you're doing it at home, you're not going to mix the, the starter culture as well as a commercial entity. So I get pushback from that, and I get pushback a fair bit. And I'm just trying to be safe and trying to give people advice that will help them succeed. You know, if they're not perfect in every other respect. But it's always nagged at me in the back of my head because I also know people who have made salami for years and they never use a starter culture and their salami is perfectly fine. So I'm not entirely sure what's the right answer in this case. Well, I mean, I, I can certainly identify with, you know, um, um, you know, you're putting out information in the world uh, about things that you've learned about, but you're not the, necessarily the world's leading expert on them. And you certainly don't want to lead somebody down a path that might endanger themselves. So, I mean, I, 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 I understand the impulse to, um, um, to, 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 to keep it safe. Um, you know, on the other hand, I think it's really important to recognize that, um, you know, in the world of salami, starter cultures got a really late start. Um, um, you know, I, I, I have this big textbook. It's, it's I, I don't know, the, 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 the handbook of meat fermentation or something like that. And, and oh, is that the know, Mariansky brothers? Uh, no, 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 no. This is a more like an academic text. I, I don't have it in front of me, so I can't really give you the the the, the accurate uh, um, um, title of it. You know, it's for like you know uh, um, food science uh, uh, classrooms and 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 things like that. But I learned in that book that the, the the earliest experiments with adding starter cultures to meat to um, uh, uh, salami were in 1961, and that's really stayed with me because I was born in 1962. Um, and um, so, you know, I, I mean, in the in the in the uh, in the larger scheme of things, you know, things that only started in the late 19th century or early 20th century are relatively recent innovations. But you know, to me, something that was first um, um, undertaken in 1961 seems extremely recent because it's you know right before my appearance on the scene. Um, and um, you know, so obviously you don't need starter cultures to make salami. I mean, I have no doubt that you can make um, uh, uh, like more consistent salami using starter cultures. You can make more consistent anything using starter cultures. But, you know, in every realm of fermentation, whether we're going to talk about sourdough bread or uh, uh, sauerkraut or raw milk cheeses or natural wines, um, um, you know, or salamis, I mean, I think that, you know, you, 
the 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 greatest examples um, um, are are always going to be done via wild fermentation rather than with um, uh, uh, pure culture uh, uh, starters. And I think that you know, especially if you're mixing fresh botanical ingredients like garlic in with your meat like right there, you have lactic acid bacteria. Like you don't have to question whether the, whether the appropriate bacteria are going to be present. Um, so, um, you know, I, I've played around with salami both ways. I've, I've had fine results both ways. Um, uh, you know, I wrote in Art of Fermentation about, about making salami without starter cultures. Uh, you know, I, 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 I haven't heard any reports of people having, you know, terrible um, um, outcomes, uh, um, you know, based on what they read in, in, in my book. But, but I do understand the, 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 the concern about it. I mean, I can give you another uh, uh, example, which is... Um, Koji. I don't know how much you've heard about koji, but you know, koji is the Japanese word for um, uh, rice or barley or soybeans or other things with a particular fungus, Aspergillus oryzae, growing on it. And um, uh, uh, you know, koji is the first step in making sake, and also in making miso, and also in making soy sauce. Um, but uh, um, you know, Japan embraced the science of microbiology very, very early. And, you know, most of the koji that's made in Japan and most of the koji that, you know, chefs around the world are, 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 are making um, um, is being made from uh, pure culture starters, which, you know, the internet has enabled us to, to, to access relatively easily. Um, you know, but, it, but, but, you know, Fungi like this are, are, you know, equally prominent in cuisines all across Asia. So in Chinese cuisine, in Korean cuisine, in Thai cuisine, in Nepali cuisine, in parts of India, um, um, you know, all across Asia, people are working with um, uh, uh, molds like this for their incredible enzyme profiles because they, they, they're so rich in enzymes. They can break down so many different kinds of um, um, macronutrients and create, you know, so many different kinds of delicious flavors. But in most of the rest of, of Asia, nobody's using starter cultures. People are using various botanical ingredients as the starters to get the um, a, a fungus growing, but, you know, sort of in the, you know, um, a, a, a contemporary fermentation revival, like there's also a lot of um, fear about wild fermented koji um, because Aspergillus oryzae is closely related to other Aspergillus species that can be quite toxic to us. So, um, um, you know, there's a lot of sort of information out there warning people, um, um, you know, that they shouldn't try this without uh, uh, the pure culture starters. And, you know, I, I, I certainly like, like appreciate trying to sort of save people from potentially dangerous situations. But I think that, you know, we have to acknowledge that until, you know, early 20th century Japan, like, um, um, you know, all koji was made through different kinds of wild fermentation, and it wasn't it wasn't completely random. There were always botanical ingredients, and in some cases, like a a, a large number of botanical ingredients that would um, um, you know sort of you know make sure that the right kind of fungus was growing. Um, um, but but I think that you know 
when people make these blanket statements, like it can't be done safely without the starter culture, it's really in denial of, you know, hundreds or thousands of years of, um, of history. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably someone who cares about where their food comes from and is excited to explore wild and unique foods. Foraged Market helps you do just that. Forage Market is an online marketplace full of unique ingredients and food products that ship directly from foragers and farmers right to your door. Whether you're looking for interesting ingredients or looking to grow your own food business, you need to check out Forage Market. Because of their ever-growing list of vendors, they have an awesome selection of ingredients and products. From pickled milkweed pods to ramp kimchi to dried wild mushrooms to craft pantry items and much more. Forage Market is sure to have something interesting for you. In addition to incredible food, Forage helps people connect. Forage.com has awesome features like direct messaging, so you can chat with the small business owners on Forage to explore new things and learn more about what's on your dinner plate. Head over to www.foraged.com and help put power back in the hands of independent food producers. What are the ways to tell people to, you know, what, do you, what to look for and how to not be scared of it? Because I think a lot of people are scared of it. They're going to poison themselves, blah, blah, blah. And I think some method or some, you know, truisms or things to look for um, to tell people who are doing this, look, unless it does X, you're fine. And I think calming people's fears is a big deal. And, and I'm wondering how you go about that. Well, sure. I mean, I think that most of what I do is 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 just like gently reassuring people, um, and you know, particularly with fermentation, because um, you know, it, 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 any of us um, uh, who, uh, especially any of us who were raised in the 20th century, you know, really were raised with this. Or if, especially if we were raised in the United States in the 20th century, we were raised with this idea that you know bacteria are agents of disease that bacteria are dangerous and need to be avoided. And so, um, you know, it's very easy for people to project all of this fear that they've been taught to have about bacteria onto the simple idea of cultivating bacteria in a jar on their kitchen counter. Um, and so, I, I mean, I remember the first time I taught a sauerkraut making uh, class, which was in 1998, this young woman held up a jar of the vegetables we had just shredded and salted. And she had this like, worried look on her face staring at the jar and she said how can I be sure I have good bacteria growing in here and you know not something dangerous that might uh you know hurt somebody or even kill somebody um and I I just have encountered sort of so many people projecting their anxiety about bacteria onto the idea of fermentation you know when in fact you know fermentation is a strategy for safety above all else um you know vegetables after they are fermented, statistically speaking, are safer than they were when they are raw. Um, um, you know, the process of fermentation makes them safer, um, you know, because once you get the vegetables submerged under, uh, under uh, liquid, lactic acid bacteria dominate every single time. And if there happen to be some cells of salmonella or E. coli or other uh, uh, microbes that we associate with food poisoning, 
they would be destroyed by the acidity. And this is one of the reasons why acidification is just such a um, um, you know, wonderful and safe form of, uh, of, of, of food preservation. So, you know, I try to acknowledge people's fears. I try to sort of explain what it is that makes these foods so safe. You know, and I always recommend that people start with fermenting vegetables because that is just a hundred percent safe. Um, you know, I think that, you know, someone who wants to make salami, I mean, you definitely can make salami perfectly safely, but, um, you, you know, we, we, we could never say that there has never been any, uh, case history of illness or food poisoning from salamis because there has, I mean, I mean, you know, there, 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 there are things that can go wrong. And in fact, the most notorious food poisoning organism of them all, uh, Clostridium botulinum, that creates the toxin that we call botulism, where we all know that word because of canning, but, you know, canning's just a, a little bit more than 200 years old. Um, you know, before canning, botulism was a very, uh, um, you know, rare thing, uh, but it was associated with, um, the food that in Latin is called botulus, which is salamis yep. uh, or sausages, which, you know, cured sausages. Why saltpeter came in to, to play 2000 years ago. Exactly. So, so I just try to sort of start people on, you know, just the most, um, um, you know, like the, the safest, most foolproof kind of processes like fermenting vegetables, um, you know, and then try to try to give people the information that they would need to try to, um, um, you know, make, um, um, you know, more elaborate other kinds of foods. But I think, you know, you really need to start with the simplest kinds of processes before you, you know, move on to more um, um, elaborate processes. But an important part of my, my you know, sort of um, um, education process is acknowledging the fears because the fears are really, really widespread. They are. They are. One of the things that I tell people, and you tell me if I'm, if I'm wrong, is with the kind of things that you're talking about, like brine, brine pickled things with lactic, lactic bacteria, you're going to know if it's bad. Like it's, there's, it's not going to sneak up on you if you're if your stuff's slimy or it stinks or it's it's pretty obvious if you if you screw that up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, the texture will tell you, or the smell of it will 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 tell you, and really, like all those things that can happen that will sort of smell disgusting or have a disgusting texture, they won't even hurt you. Oh really? You know, it's 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 it's, re right, it's, it's, it's really just like our you know our 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 aesthetic uh, um, uh, uh, preferences uh, um, you know can be very strong. You know our aversions can be strong. I mean I think that um, you know I think an interesting thing to talk about is um, putrefaction, um, uh, and you know this is a, like a possible outcome. Per particularly with high protein uh, 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 substrates. Um, I'm immediately um, thinking of Alaskan uh, salmon products of which there's a bunch that involve putrefaction. Yeah, yeah, sure. But, but I mean, also like if you think about the world of cheese and um, you know, I think, I think cheese illustrates so much about like the possibilities of fermentation, but um, um, 
you know, at this stage in my life, the cheeses that I get most excited about are, you know, these ones with really, really strong smells that, 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 you know, in, 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 as a child, I would have been very put off by. And, you know, I've learned that all kinds of people are put off by very strong cheeses. And, you know, I think it's because, you know, they're working this, this edge and, um, you know, f- flavors can get better and better and better until they get worse. But like where we draw the, that line is extremely subjective. Um, and, you know, it can be culturally subjective, but it also is individually subjective. And, um, uh, you know, I think, I think that that line is all about putrefaction. A little bit of putrefaction can make things extraordinarily delicious. Um, and, you know, putrefaction oh, yeah. in and of itself is not is not dangerous. It's just like it reminds us of decomposing flesh. And that's what that's what makes us feel so put off. But, you know, with with strong flavored cheeses, um, uh, you know, some people develop the taste to, you know, really find pleasure in that sort of edge of ripeness and, and putrefaction. And uh, I certainly am one of them. I'm immediately thinking of high gain. So uh, when you hang game birds like pheasants and quail and partridges and grouse, there's a sweet spot where everybody's going to like it. Hang them at 50 degrees, holing in the feathers for about five days. That's kind of that sweet spot. But you can hang them longer than that. And they and then you get towards, you come closer to that putrefaction edge. And there's, I, I know people who will hang for two weeks. And that's a serious funk that it's crazy because it just stinks for the first five or six minutes when it's in the oven. And then something flips and it smells like the greatest pheasant you've ever eaten. It's really weird. It's just crazy. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and I mean, I've had that experience even with like, um, uh, you know, vegetable source things. I, I, I make this, um, I, I, I soak uh, raw buckwheat and then make a batter of it that I can either make into a pure buckwheat, totally gluten-free loaf of bread or into beautiful buckwheat pancakes. Um, but you know, the buckwheat is pretty high in protein. And, you know, if you leave it, if you leave the batter fermenting for several days, it can really start to have a little bit of a putrid edge in its aroma but when you make those when you make those pancakes um, um, there's no there's no trace of it so I think that in a lot of different contexts you can have sort of the the smell of putrefaction but then when you prepare the food um, um, you don't it doesn't translate into a flavor of putrefaction I wanted to get with you about when you were talking about um fermenting vegetables a little while ago. One of the things that happens with me a lot, and it happens to a lot of people who do this business, is the development of calm yeast. Um, and it's a, for those of you out there who don't, are familiar with it, if you ferment something with, you know, like a brine, sometimes, but not always, you'll get this kind of, it's like a, it's like a, the sheet over a ghost. It's like this kind of wispy thing that appears above your fermented thing. And sometimes it's attached to the top of whatever you're fermenting. And sometimes it's hanging out in the brine. And it's it's called kamis, K-A-H-M, and it's a thing that happens, and it's it's kind of neither good nor bad, and it, but it's it can be persistent uh, and difficult to get rid of. And I'm wondering if you have any tips on that. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, first of all, like 
try not to worry about it. I mean, you know, I've heard so many stories about, you know, people throwing away their, you know, three gallon crock of sauerkraut because it had a little calm yeast on it. You know, try not to freak out about it. It's it's just really normal. So, you know, the, the, the basic idea in fermenting vegetables is you're trying to get the vegetables submerged and submerging them protects them from the steady flow of oxygen and guarantees that the lactic bacteria are going to dominate. But, you know, unless you have a very specially engineered system, um, you know, the, the, the surface of it is always going to come into contact with the oxygen rich air. And it's the oxygen in the air that's sort of feeding those organisms um, um, that, that, that develop the, the layer that we call calm yeast. And, you know, another possibility is sometimes you could get a little bit of a hairy white mold growing on the surface. You know, these are really harmless. Um, um, I had a really interesting experience in China. Um, we were visiting um, uh, the chef of a huge restaurant, it had like 500 seats in it. We were there learn to learn about Dobanjang, but when he realized that we were interested in pickles, he like took off his chef jacket, put on a coat and sort of took us a few blocks away. And he had this open air uh, structure with all of these maybe hundred liter size pot belly uh, uh, ceramic crocks filled with different kinds of vegetables in brines. And he wanted to show us his fermenting long beans, but none of the vessels were marked. So he opened up about a half a dozen vessels before he found them. And, you know, in each one, there was just this layer of calm yeast on the surface of the brine. And, you know, we're there with, you know, videotaping him with cameras and completely unselfconsciously. And on camera, he just mixed the calm yeast back in without giving it a thought that, um, um, you know, that anybody would find this objectionable. Now, you know, my own preference is to skim it off as best I can, but as you say, it can be really quite persistent. Um, this technique that I learned from a, from a woman in China who showed me how she makes uh, pao tsai, which is a style of fermented vegetables, but she does it with a, um, a perpetual brine. So she keeps on putting more vegetables in. Um, but when she gets calm yeast growing on the top, she pours a little bit of baiju, which is liquor. She pours a little bit of liquor in it. And of course, the you know uh, alcohol is lighter than water. So it rises to the top. So on the very top surface, you get a very very high concentration of alcohol, which then evaporates. So, um, you know, that, that can be effective. And I, I would do that more in a, in something that's really liquidy, briny, like pickles than in something like sauerkraut. But generally I just try to remove it as best I can and don't worry about it. And if it keeps coming back, then, I, then I'll move it to the refrigerator and you can still get calm yeast in the refrigerator, but it'll, you know, it'll develop much more slowly. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you can take, I've seen it, I've seen it develop over the course of a year in a, in a refrigerator pickle. Yeah. I mean, you know, in general, you know, so, sort of like you can get mold growing on a, a half jar of jelly, but you know, if you want to preserve food for long periods of time in your refrigerator, the fuller the vessel, the less airspace in the vessel, the fresher it will stay. The, the you know, mo most food degradation has to do with um, uh, oxygen and oxidation and um, aerobic uh, microbes. Yeah, it's kind of why I explain to people when, because I make, I have wine grapes in my backyard and I make wine every year and whatever 
is beyond what I can fit in my vessels, I will make into red wine vinegar. Well, there's a reason why red wine vinegar is not the same color as red wine. It's because of oxidation. It's, mm. you know, yeah. it's always a, it's a little bit browning. I have always stopped my vinegar when my vinegar is where I want it. Because if I leave it too long, it kind of turns into nail polish removal. And mm. I don't know how like companies like Bragg's avoid that. Is it again one of those deals where once it's where they like it, they just fill up the jar and so there's almost no air in it? Or is there something exactly? And you know, the other thing that can happen with vinegar is that acetobacter, the bacteria that metabolize um, alcohol into acetic acid, but only in the presence of oxygen. So they are aerobic organisms. Um, and this is the reason why alcoholic beverages are always sealed or in, in, in full vessels with narrow necks and sealed so so tightly is to um, you know protect the 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 beverages from um, oxygen, because, you know, you can assume that there are acetobacter everywhere. Um, uh, but if, um, uh, if you leave your vinegar in an open vessel with uh, access to plentiful oxygen, once those organisms run out of alcohol, they can start to consume the acetic acid that they have just produced and break it down into water and carbon dioxide so they can de-acidify vinegar. So, you know, it's important when you're making vinegar to, um, you know, I mean, I mean, I don't have an instrument to measure um, um, the acidity of it. I'm, I'm, I'm just tasting it. But, you know, once it tastes like it is strongly acidic and it doesn't have a, a, a sweetness or alcohol that you can taste, then you want to really seal it. You know, either you want to pasteurize it or you want to seal it uh, quite firmly in a full vessel. And, you know, what I would recommend is, you know, if you make a, a quart of vinegar, don't put it in one quart jar, you know, put it in, a, in, in, in several smaller bottles, because it'll preserve much better in unopened full bottles than they will in, um, you know, a bottle that's going to take you many months to, um, to use up. It's ah, a good idea. Um, one thing I can suggest, and you probably know this, but uh, I just buy pH strips. You can buy like a thousand pH strips for like six bucks. And uh, when you dip your pH strip into the, the vinegar and then you match it on the colors, and then if it's somewhere between three and four, you're in, you're in the ballpark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've, I've used pH strips a, a, a little bit, but you know, you have pe people also, um, you know, have, um, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 meters that, that they can give oh, you yeah. perc uh, per percentage of, of titratable of acidity. acidity. We use it in winemaking, yeah. and uh, yeah. it's. I had one, and then I was like, eh, you know, I can make wine fine without one, so I just <laughs> sold it on. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's good. I mean, you know, t t tools can be helpful, but tools sometimes are extraneous. Um, you know, in my my first years of making yogurt, I, I I refused to use a thermometer, and as a result, I had you know really uh, uh, um, quite variable results because um, you know yogurt is just all about sort of maintaining the right temperature range. And sometimes I would get it right, and sometimes I'd get it way wrong. Um, so um, you know, there's there, there's no shame in using a thermometer, um, um, you know, or or other tools. But um, you know, sometimes they turn out to be extraneous. That is a good segue to the last thing I want to talk to you about, which is, you know, how 
would you tell people who are listening to this right now who are interested in, in either A, starting or B, upping their fermentation game? What are some projects or tips or things that they should say, you know, try this and you will learn a lot and you'll be a better fermenter because of it? Well, you know, the world of fermentation is so wide and varied. I mean, literally, there is nothing you could possibly eat that cannot be fermented. Um, uh, so, I mean, I would say it depends a lot about, you know, what you like and 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 what you like to eat. Um, you know, I would also say it depends a lot on, you know, what 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 is abundant. Um, you know, what what do you have access to that is um, you know, sort of fresh at a certain moment of the year and 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 abundant to you. And um you know, I mean, I, as I said, I, I recommend for most people that vegetables are, are a great way to start. But then, you know, beyond vegetables, I do a lot of fermentation of grains. I do a lot of fermentation of beans. Um, uh, I do a, a fair amount of fermentation of milk. I do a little bit of fermentation of meat. Um, you know, if fish was more plentiful in my life, I would love to do fermentation, more fermentation of fish. But, you know, I live in this landlocked place without a lot of fresh fish uh, uh, available to me. So, um, um, you know, that that's where I have the, the least experience. But um, you can make fish sauce out of freshwater fish bucket. It's a, it's a thing. Okay, and 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 also, um, I have a recipe in fermentation journeys for a um, uh, um, uh, a ferment a Chinese way of of fermenting carp. Um, and you know, most ferments you could apply to other other you know similar kinds of 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 food. So I have no doubt that you know you could apply those methods to other kinds of freshwater fish as well. I would say for people. I would suggest buying the art of fermentation. I mean, that's the book that I spent, you know, a month reading and, and, and developing well, ideas and writing notes because it's it's so comprehensive. It's got it's got data on so many different kinds of things. I I, appre I appreciate hearing that. I mean, certainly the the art of fermentation is the most thorough and the longest of the books that I've written. Um, you know, I I always remember this woman who uh, uh, bought a copy off of my website when it first came out, and then she mailed it back, and she's like, she said, "It's too much information. I just wanted to know how to make sauerkraut." Um, so, uh -huh. um, <laughs> you know, wild wild fermentation is maybe more accessible to you know. Um, um, people who've never done any fermentation. Um, but I think that for anyone who's, you know, interested in learning about, uh, um, you know, the microbiology of it, um, is interested in history or anthropology, um, um, you know, Art of Fermentation certainly is the most um, thorough of my books. I, you know, I hesitate to join you in calling it comprehensive because, um, you know, I think that the the, the realm of fermentation is you know, so big and so broad that, you know, I mean, certainly my books, and I don't believe any book I've ever seen on the topic, you know, could be described as, 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 as comprehensive. That's I mean, fair. I am, I am just, I am always learning. Available. I am always learning about different kinds of ferments that I hadn't heard about. And actually just this week, I got a, I got an email from a, from a, a guy in Italy who was telling me about a, 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 a tradition of using the, um, uh, 
the skins, uh, um, you, you know, you, using the like the, the 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 skins that you filter out at some point as a medium for fermenting vegetables. Um, so, you know, um, uh, you know, after 30 years of being obsessed with this, I keep learning about, um, um, you know, new, uh, uh variants and, um, you know, the, 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 the world of fermented foods and beverages is, is vast and, um, uh, you know, extremely varied. What are you working on right now? Well, I actually just got home from a, you know, five week long cross country uh, uh, road trip. And I'm, I'm just kind of um, catching up with myself and, um, um, you know, catching up with a bunch of um, 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 commitments like this and catching up with my correspondence. Um, and um, so, you know, at this moment, that's, that's my, that's my focus is just sort of catching up from the longest vacation I've had in 20 years. Congratulations. Where Thank can you. someone find uh, or keep up with you, like keep up with your, what you're working on now, or maybe the new stuff you're finding out because I follow you on Instagram and uh, you also have a website and all that. So tell people where they can. Yeah. Yeah. My, I mean, I would say my website is the, is the, is the, you know, best way to keep up with, with what I'm doing. Um, and I put all my workshops and such on my website and I have information about my, my books on my website. My website is wildfermentation.com. Um, you know, I, I am on Instagram. I'm uh, at Sandor Kraut. Um, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a sporadic poster, um, uh, but, but I, am, I am on there as well. I'm guessing you're not a huge TikTok person. Uh, no, no, no. I, I, I have, not, I have not been on TikTok yet. But um, you know, I recently had a um, um, a friend who is um, um, about to turn eighty who was trying to convince me that I have to get active on TikTok. Um, so who knows? <laughs> I have resisted it so far. I, I, Instagram is kind of my primary social media out, outreach, just because it's it's the medium I have found to be the least toxic. I, I killed my Twitter many years ago. It was just a. Yeah, no, I, I, I really enjoy Instagram. And I mean, there's a huge fermentation community on, on Instagram. And, you know, I've, I've met people just in many, many different parts of the world who share my passion for fermentation. And, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, a, a fun way to meet people with similar interests. Well, Sandor, it's been real. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to show up when you're, uh, one of your workshops in person someday because you actually finally meet in the flesh. And where, where in California are you located? Uh, if you are familiar with Johnny Cash, I am in running distance of Folsom Prison. So it's that's near, Northern California. It is. It's near Sacramento. Oh, okay. So you've had a lot of water up there. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I'm happy that I live on sandy soil on top of a little hill. Okay, well, I, I, I pulled out my, my sourdough starter, which has been um, in the fridge for the last six weeks, and I'm, I'm going to feed it today, and uh, that's going to be my first step towards uh, baking some bread tomorrow. I'm going to start fermenting some salami because it's that time of year. All right. Well, um, um, I hope it goes great. Maybe this time you'll try without starter cultures. Who knows? I might give it a go because that that Swedish uh, sausage that I was telling you about before, I did not use other culture, and the presence of barley made it hella, hella tangy, and I like that. Well, great. Well, it's such a pleasure uh, uh, speaking with you. Thanks for having me on your uh, podcast. 
yeah, thanks for coming on and I will let you know when it runs. Okay. Well, that is our podcast for this week. I apologize about my audio. It, uh, it wasn't the best, but sometimes glitches happen. I hope you could still understand me reasonably well and you could definitely hear Sandor and he was the one that you really wanted to listen to. I learned a ton in this episode. I hope you did too and I hope you enjoyed spending a little part of your day with us here at Hunt Gather Talk. Again, I'm Hank Shaw. Thank you for listening. You can find me on Instagram at Hunt Gather Cook. You can find me on my website, which is huntgathercook.com, or you can find me on Facebook, also at Hunt Gather Cook. Take it easy, and I will talk to you soon.